Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Joshua Manuel. His key topic of discussion will be discussing his philosophy for developing footballers. Josh is a strength conditioning coach at the Adelaide Crows Football Club with key responsibilities such as including the management of the first to four-year strength programs and assisting rehabilitation. Josh has also worked at the Port Adelaide Football Club, the Darren Lehman Cricket Academy, and the Sample Umpires. Highlights from this episode, we discuss the importance of being enthusiastic and understanding your role as an intern. The three key pillars for the Crows Athletic Development Plan. Why developing a reflection practice is critical in making the most of your mentors and key learnings. Why the off-season is such a critical time for Australian rules footballers and how Josh designs his training programs and session plans. Before we start this episode, for those coaches wanting to learn how to create an online coaching successful business and make an impact in elite sport, then our Coaches Academy is for you. You get access to our step-by-step roadmap to launching your own online coaching business, an extensive training library and exclusive discounts and tools. You'll also become part of our active and supportive community filled with strength conditioning coaches from all over the world who can help you along your coaching journey with practical feedback, support and advice. All of this and more make our academy the number one place to be for a successful strength and conditioning coach when you start, manage, and or grow a coaching business. For more information, head over to preparelikeaproacademy.com.au. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Look forward to seeing you on the next Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for jumping on, mate. No, thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be on board, mate. Always a really good time to sit down and talk some shop. So thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. And yeah, for the strength and conditioning coaches tuning in, this is a, a hot topic, I think, athlete development. So it'll be, yeah, no doubt an interest for, for everyone tuning in. But take us back to the very beginning of your career. At what age did, did you discover you had a passion for strength and conditioning and working in elite sport? Yeah, look, I think it was it was always something I was really interested in and, and really keen on. Obviously, playing a little bit of sport as a teenager, but never being very good. I sort of always tried to look for what else I could do around the outside to help my very mediocre performance. And I remember sort of going to a lot of AFL games when I was younger and trying to sort of find and seek out the strength coach or the high performance manager, whoever it was, having a look at them on the field and sort of seeing what they do. But I think sort of when I was going through, the hard part was that Although it was a role, it was a very young profession and a really young industry and something that was probably quite hard to break into like it still is now. So I always sort of had that as a, as a long-term goal, but never really knew how to get into it. So I guess I went to uni and did human movement, majoring in exercise science, sort of trying to start relatively general and then feel out what I wanted to do. And originally, the sort of plan was to go into exercise physiology or physio as a major. But then I was really lucky in my second year that I got a placement or an internship at Adelaide United. And that was a really great experience. And sort of as soon as I walked in the door there, I knew this is this is where I want to be and this is what I want to do moving forward. So sort of starting is picking up cones and 
and filling up water bottles the so many people do and then being around and being a pest and, and doing whatever I could to sort of try and contribute in my small little way. And I was relatively fortunate as well that completely coincidentally the year that I interned at Adelaide United was the year that they won the A-League. Um, and a few sort of, yeah, which was absolutely great. And a few little opportunities sort of rose through that in that the strength coach for the national youth and national premier league teams was going away for a three or four month holiday right in the middle of the season. And being the, the intern there, it was sort of got offered a role to pick up that and, and complete the national youth league and national premier league seasons as a strength coach. And just going in there and trying to do whatever I could sort of really cemented in my head that this is what I want to do. And, and from there sort of ditched the exercise physiology and physiotherapy path and put all my eggs into the strength conditioning basket. And yeah, you mentioned excitement and passion and, and, the, and this role, this internship reiterated that. What, what were the things that you sort of noticed in you and your gut that this is, this is for you in terms of pathways? Yeah, look, I think I'm, I'm big on helping people and I love the feeling of fulfillment that you get when you see a client or an athlete or, or someone that you're working relatively close with achieving success or whether that be coming back from an injury or or playing their first game at AFL or Sandful or, or A-League or whatever it was, or even just watching them improve and getting better in the weight room. And I think because it's such a scope to see such large improvements with relatively untrained and youth athletes, we sort of had some guys getting relatively big PBs and progressing on and, and sort of progressing towards A-League contracts and just feeling like you have something to provide and something to offer and, and that you can actually have a relatively big part in, in an athlete's career and an athlete's success was, was really, really fulfilling to me. And how did you make the most of that internship? But because getting that other opportunity, the national side, obviously you were doing a good job in assisting the team and, and obviously then building trust that you, to give you some responsibilities. Uh, how did you sort of approach the internship from a yeah, mindset point of view? And, and for the SNCs listening in, what do you think are some key pillars to focus on to, when you're doing it, taking on an internship? Yeah, look, I, th I think the big thing that I always tried to do and had at the forefront of my mind was being enthusiastic and just remembering what your role as an intern actually is and that you probably won't get to do the very glamorous things early or, or at all, but knowing that whatever you do will still have an impact and will still be positive. So I went in with that real mindset of just doing whatever I can to contribute, being an active listener, actively trying to learn and being actively engaged. So we sort of had a, a two-day-a-week intern roster but again relatively pestily i tried to rock up sort of three or four days a week and volunteered on game days and just tried to be around it as much as i could more so not knowing that any opportunities were going to progress but more around trying to take out of it what i could and get everything out of that intern opportunity that i had so sort of as i alluded to early days that was filling up the water bottles players not knowing your name setting up cones and then just sort of standing in the background and, and watching the session or watching the gym session to sort of very slowly being invited in to spot someone's bench press or spot someone on a back squat or, or run a warm up, whatever it may be. And I think sort of the big thing that I would recommend to young coaches is try and just involve themselves as much as they can and having a real sort of yes mindset and a yes mentality when you come into that. It might, may not be particularly glamorous, but whatever you can do to assist and whatever you can do to help and just saying yes to opportunities shows that you're keen and you're interested and, and that can definitely progress into sort of greater opportunities and, and things down the road. 100%. That's sound advice. Yeah, thank, you for, thank you for sharing. And in terms of influencers or mentors, if you like, were there people around you at this time of your career to help you in terms of your approach or was this just something that came intuitively in your work ethic? Look, I guess... I've always had a passion for, for keeping fit and training and, and all of those things. And early days, 
it was very largely around just wanting to be involved and wanting to do stuff and and not really having a great understanding of of SMC per se, but sort of just through your own training and what you did. But as I've sort of progressed through my career, reflecting on it now, I've been extraordinarily lucky with the the mentors that I've had. Sort of once I left Adelaide United, I went over to the SANFL and, and worked there for a year and bumped into Ian McEwen, who was my sort of first real mentor and is still a, a great mentor and someone who I look up to today and keep in regular contact with. But he was very much my my opening into getting my opportunity at the power. And then from there, Steve Saunders, one of the huge reasons that I got my role at the Crows. So Steve and I are relatively close and we still keep in contact and he taught me an absolute load. I've also been really fortunate in that Matt Haas was our high performance manager at the Crows when I arrived. And Hassey is probably one of the better strength coaches who's rolled around the AFL circles before. So the development that I got under Hassey was absolutely incredible. And then with our current high-performance staff, obviously, Tim Parham is our head physio and Tim and I work very well together. So, Tim has taught me a lot, particularly from a rehab and return to player, return to performance standpoint. And then that leads me to Burjo, who's our current high-performance manager. And I'm sure, as all of you listeners would know, one of the more globally renowned high-performance practitioners and an absolute jet and guru too. So, even in a short space of time over this season, Burjo has taught me a lot and someone who I sort of consider as, as probably one of the better mentors as well. Yeah. And on that, like you shared some advice in terms of taking on an internship and to, to make it a successful one, whether it be lead to a role or, or even just to make a bigger impact in that, in that internship and actually get responsibilities. From a mentor, building mentor relationships and building your networking point of view, what would be some, some tips that you found that's quite effective in terms of building your relationships with these, like there's some significant names in the industry that have been in there for a long time. You can imagine that someone new to the the industry might be a bit intimidated or overwhelmed with, with meeting these type of characters, but how would you go about developing a relationship? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I think it all comes down to taking on the knowledge and advice that they have and being open and humble with that those people are in their positions because they're extraordinarily good at what they do and they've done a lot of cool things. And sort of the big thing that I was sort of thought to myself with all of my mentors and still do to this day is that they've probably forgotten more about strength conditioning or high performance than, than I've ever known. Um, mm-hmm. So any piece of advice that they give you or, or just day-to-day interactions with those people is making sure that you are open and actively listening to them and taking that advice on board. And then I think reflection is a huge part of that as well in that you can then take that advice and have a think about it and say, yes, this is something that I, I really value and think will have a huge impact on what I do. Or conversely, potentially with what we're trying to get out of it at the moment, that piece might not be great and I would do it this way instead. But it's very much having that open mindset of taking on board everything that they have to share with you mm. and then going away and critically analysing sort of what you believe or don't believe to be the best way and best course of action there. And in terms of just day-to-day interaction, I think it's sort of it's a big thing and it's relatively similar with going into an ASL high-performance environment and seeing these you know big dog players rolling around it's just trying to remember as well that well, they were once in your position too but two they're mm. just people and that you sort of have to just treat them like people because they are we're all sort of work in this environment and in this profession because we all have very similar interests and probably have very similar personalities too so it's trying to find those common grounds and just sort of actually talking to that person and finding their interests outside of strength conditioning as well so like for example when i met Maccas for the first time it was 
was just co- like really coincidentally at a gym and we we're both just lifting on the lifting platform next to one another and you know we sort of got chatting about just basic lifting and, and whatever we were doing i think he was squatting and i was power cleaning or something along those lines so that yeah we sort of got chatting about that and then one thing led to another but i think if you can find things outside of work that you guys get on well with and that you have in common it just makes it really easy to actually have a professional and a personal personally fulfilling relationship with those people yeah absolutely well said mate i think that filter reflection piece that you mentioned is is critical in this day and age because information is is heavily available more than ever whether it be through audio research or, or getting access to mentors like like you said so being having a, your own reflection process where you can work out what's relevant for you right now and therefore and not get too overwhelmed with too much information i think it is a great way to to go about it and like you said the everyone's a, a human at the end of the day and, and probably has some similar interest to yourself. So uh, that, was, that was awesome, mate. Thank, thanks for sharing. And in terms of the athletes tuning in and, and your topic of choice, the first of strength and power program, mate, talk, talk us about some sort of key pillars that you like to focus on with the Adelaide Crows. Yeah, look, so I guess at the Crows, sort of we have some relatively set in structure processes that we've adapted and, and manipulated through the years. And we've sort of broken our first to four year athletic development, but particularly our strength and power program down into three key pillars that we see as, as essential. The first pillar of that being is our athletes earning the right to progress. So we find quite regularly that you've sort of got guys who may roll in at a completely different range on their athletic development journey from players rolling in who are relatively open in that they have not done any gym previously or players rolling in with a relatively good training age who are proficient in some of the basic lifts can can move relatively well for their age group. So to do that, we sort of say that you have to show us the capabilities that you have rather than just saying, oh, I can do X, Y, and Z, is actually objectively showing us that you have the capabilities to do something. So the big ones that we use there are using objective markets for progression. So quite basically, we will start with just your key fundamental movement patterns. So can you do, can you push, pull, squat, hinge, lunge, twist, carry? And then can you jump and land and hop proficiently? If the box is ticked for yes there, then you may move up into some slightly more progressed options. But if it's not, then we'll start you relatively basically. But I think inside of that as well, the big one for me as well is that we have worked really hard on our strength and power culture at the Crows and hopefully are on the right trajectory there. So I think by making your athletes start lower down that end of the spectrum and working through the lower level progressions and becoming really, really competent in those, it then allows them to progress to bigger things better, put more external load on the bar while lifting really well, but it also gives them something to aspire to as well in that, you know, they might say, Tex Walker, for example, with a, a 240 kilos on the trap bar and they've got 20 on each side and it could be a bit of a, oh, this is something that I've really got to work up to. Or that's the level that some of those senior players are at and that's what time in the system does and this is where I'm at there. So what I think it does is really instill a working culture into those athletes and shows them where they're at and then where the level is yet to and sort of shows them how to train hard. But specifically as well, for most of our athletes with a lower training age too, is focusing on a range of subjective and objective markers too. So if you've never done a squat before, we're not going to load you up. We're going to keep that body weight or very, very lightly loaded and teach you how to move well. And then we use our AAA assessment developed by Maccas as well to subjective or partially subjectively and partially objectively track how our athletes are moving through that curve. But then from an objective marker standpoint too, for using, the, using a push-up, for example, 
is that we won't allow any of our athletes to progress to a bench press or any sort of externally loaded movement until they can do eight perfect push-ups with 50% of external load on their back. And we find that that's something challenging for them and gives them something to progress towards. But it also, again, allows us to teach them multiple movement qualities at the same time within the one exercise. So for example, we're ticking the box of, of really good core bracing and trunk bracing. We're teaching free scat pressing. And the other big part of it as well is if you've got your body weight plus external load, for some of our athletes who are lesser trained, you're probably going to have as close to, if not more external load or total load being lifted than you would if you've got, let's say, 40 kilo on a bench press, for example. So it sort of ticks numerous boxes from that. And then outside of that, we sort of use more isometric testing measures to actually track trends and watch change sort of through those athletes as they progress through their really young training age. So for example, using their Nordics or their ISO squat assessments or an isometric calf assessment to watch changes in their force production capabilities as they move through those sort of lower level progressions and into higher level progressions. And then obviously sort of we, we bias movement quality and movement competency over all other things. So using all of our foundational key movement patterns with higher volumes, exposing our athletes to lots of free scat pressing to allow their scapula to move through range rather than pinning them into a bench and then using sort of low level gymnastics variations as well for some trunk and hip control and, and integrity of those which we find then allows our athletes to follow into and work into our mainstream program a little bit nicer but then i think the other thing as well that you always have to keep in mind is that there are lots of considerations for physical development because we are in a results-based environment that you have to also walk the fine line between Yes, some of our athletes may need six months to learn how to do all of these fundamental movement patterns well, but at the same time, we're also trying to prepare our athletes to potentially play around one or to set them up from a physical standpoint to withstand and tolerate the amount of volume that they are taking on ground, but also allow them to be robust enough to execute the tactical and technical requirements that our coaching staff put in place there. So. While we're using that, we sometimes we use different things like blood flow restriction training or relatively sort of high metabolic circuits and different bits and pieces like that for our athletes who potentially aren't quite getting the external load in to still allow them to get a really good metabolic and systemic hormonal stimulus to promote strength and, and muscle mass increases in those athletes while they're in their relatively sort of infant stages of their athletic development. Yeah, awesome, mate. Yeah, thank you. We'll, we'll unpack a few key areas there. The, the triple A assessment, what, what's that entail? Yeah, so AAA assessment is the athletic ability assessment, which was developed by Ian McEwen as part of his PhD and something that was instilled in me relatively early, obviously working under Maccas at the power. Basically, it, as it sort of alludes to, it's a, it's a very quick and easy screen that is done using fundamental movements. So push up, pull up, single leg squat to box, altitude landing, single leg, and a few other bits and pieces, and some trunk control tests. But basically, we can take an athlete through that in around 15 to 20 minutes. And within that, we then can mark them on a subject, sorry, on an objective scale of one, two, or three based on how good or poor their movement quality is. So it, although it is relatively subjective, it does provide a piece of objectivity within that. And then we generally test our athletes the first day they come in the door once they've been drafted around the mid-season buy and then again at the end of their first year and it just allows us to show and ch show changes basically in how our athletes are moving rather than completely subjectively saying oh yeah they're a good squatter now 
it now provides with objectivity of early days, they couldn't hold a neutral pelvis and they drop into posterior pelvic tilt. But then across the season, we see that get better and better. And then by the end of their first year, they can now do a perfect overhead squat with a little bit of external load. Yeah, um, yeah awesome. And then for the ones that you mentioned that may have come to the club, a low base, I imagine it can, and maybe they're not genetically wired to, to uh, strength and power. So it's a slow burn. H- how do you manage the frustration of, you know, all they want to do probably at that age is do what Texas is doing in terms of the movements? What are some ways from a coaching point of view that you try and keep them motivated and, and on task? Yeah, look, so I think the big thing that is critical in that, and one of the things that we do is that we have progression continuums for all of our key move qualities and key movement patterns that we are really open with sharing for those athletes. And we can show them by, by setting those objective goals and giving them goals to work towards. Obviously, we know that all professional athletes are extraordinarily competitive. And by providing the objectivity within that, let's say you're an 80 kilo athlete, once you can do a 40 kilo way to push up for a set of eight, then you can progress to this and then you can progress to that. It just gives them that goal and they may know that it might take them a little while, but they gives them that goal, which then keeps them motivated, allows them to progress through and they see those small pieces of progression, whether that's been going from 20 kilos to 25 kilos or whatever it may be on that or watching their AAA assessment get better or just feeling stronger and feeling bigger. And I think the other piece of that as well is because some of those athletes are so untrained when they get a, a pump on, for lack of a better term, they start yeah, to feel yeah. quite good about themselves and you see that sort of confidence increase and then that drives the love for them to actually go further through that and you find that quite quickly as they continue to progress through that, they start to celebrate those wins and in no time they're up sort of doing, doing those more advanced or more sort of, I guess, main group progressions rather than their first year progressions. Yeah, and from a long-term perspective, like you mentioned, this, you'll have a, a range of different players, some that are ready for round one at 18 for AFL level and others maybe where it could take a couple more years. Is there ever a time where the tactical technical is sacrificed a little bit to allow for more training in the gym or is it always focusing on promoting the tactical technical side of things? Yeah, look, I think it's a balance between the two. Quite, We will very, very regularly and most of the time we will lean towards allowing the athlete to compete in their tactical and technical training because at the end of the day, Although we love weightlifting and we love gym, our players are here as professional athletes and they're here to play football. And quite often as well, as although we may be taking a little while to progress our athletes in the gym, quite often you find the same thing with using structures and the way that we like to play football as a team with the on-ground. And at the end of the day, we're not preparing that athlete to be a gym athlete. We're preparing them to play AFL or Sandful or, or a mixture of both through those. So it's, it's really the big one for me there is having a sort of a holistic approach to our athletic development and having a multidisciplinary sort of approach to how we prepare those athletes. So quite often we will use our development coaches and work in conjunction with our development coaches to assess that athlete's strengths, their weaknesses and their long-term playing needs, particularly around their, their position and assess why that athlete was drafted and what's the long-term plan for that athlete. So sort of a long way around to answer your question is, let's say, for example, we've just drafted a, a Ruckman who is significantly underweight. That's yeah. a potential point where we will look to bias our physical development more than our technical and tactical development because that athlete needs the muscle mass and the strength and the physical robustness to be able to tolerate the demands of the sport. Whereas we're drafting, let's say, a, a halfback flanker who we know is potentially undersized, but also has a lot of football now, but may not know our structures very well, or may have a lot of sort of KPIs 
and RFIs to work on from the field, then most of the time sort of lean more towards using that tactical and technical and just working on their their physical outputs and their physical capabilities in conjunction with that. But I think the other thing as well is also having a really good relationship and working coherently within the high performance team as well. So for example, although we may not want to miss out on any tactical and technical training, most of our athletes will run hills on a Saturday morning, for example, in pre-season. So it may be an opportunity where those athletes who need to put on that muscle mass are or who are relatively behind from a physical development standpoint don't go to heels that day and they do an extra strength session or they stay at the club with myself and do something that we call like strongman Saturdays, which is just general sort of physical preparedness work with, you know, slamming med balls and jackhammers and and med balls sort of flips or tire flips and, and all of those different pieces. But it's basically just around having, yeah, that really sort of holistic approach to it and what's going to be best for the athlete and then what's going to be best for their career and for the club moving forward. Yeah, well said, mate. So it's, it's obviously quite thorough and in-depth in terms of the individualization. And, and like you said, it's, it's not just your role, but also integrating others at the club. How often would you have a chat with, with the development coach? Is it more informal sort of chats as they're walking past the gym or as you're walking past them? Or is it, or is it formal meetings like a medical hub performance meeting? Talk us through the process there. Yeah, so it's, it's all sort of it's really different. And I think coaches are relatively similar to athletes in that some everyone has different learning styles and different styles of communication so for some of our development coaches they really like the formal let's sit down with myself and and them and Berjo or whoever it may be to actually sit down and map out a program and a process that typically happens when we have a an athlete enter our rehab for a medium to long term time is we'll always try and sit down and map out, okay, from a coaching standpoint, this is where your strengths are, this is where your weaknesses are, this is what we want to attack. And from a high performance standpoint too, it may be, okay, you need a little bit of extra muscle mass on you or we need to work on your active strength qualities or you may need to be a little bit fitter. So for those rehabs, it's, it's much more formal. But in general, it's mostly around all of our players have EDPs, we call them, which are elite development programs or elite development plans, which we can all see too. So we know relatively well from informal chats, plus using those EDPs, what the athlete needs from a coaching standpoint and from a high performance standpoint. And then from there, it may be a formal meeting or it may be an informal conversation around, oh, this is what I'm thinking with player X. How do you feel about that? And they go, yep, great, great, great. Or, you know, we may need to work on X, Y, and Z. So using an example there, like one of our, one of our players this offseason, we've put a, a big focus on then increasing their muscle mass, particularly their upper body muscle mass. So that was a more sort of formal process and sitting down with, with Nixie and their development coach and their line coach. And then myself and our other strength coaches and Virgil as well and saying, okay, this is where we're going to go. This is the concessions we're going to make from a running standpoint. This is the program that we're going to put in place from a strength standpoint. And then from a compliance standpoint, there's some strategies that we may be able to use to really make sure that we get bang for buck out of that because sort of the off-season to me, and I think it's sort of a, a relatively outdated philosophical approach in that the off-season is a complete time off. Or, you know, you do the bare minimum to maintain the physical qualities that you may have developed over your pre-season and in-season. Whereas here at the Crows, we're, we're really big on, particularly from a strength standpoint, is in our opinion, is if you attack your strength work hard over the off-season, it's the best point of the year to put on significant amounts of strength and muscle mass because your running volumes are lower. 
you don't have the physiological or the mental stress of being a professional athlete. And we can really put a big emphasis on your gym work if we need to, because you have so much time on your hands and everyone's free as well so that we can we can take them for one-on-one sessions or we can do whatever it needs to be over that off-season. Yeah, yeah. Take, take us through that. So is that keeping the movement simple because you're not getting the same touch points? And it's something that you, you referenced off air in terms of a philosophy, you know, keeping it simple, but this, keeping the standards high. So that might be an element to, to bring in there. But how do you how do you sort of manage that where you want to try and get them stronger and building muscle mass, but you're not getting as much interaction or engagement with them in the off-season? Yeah, and look, it's a great question. And I think the big one that you sort of touched on there is one of our key athletic development philosophies is, is keep the program simple and do the basic things savagely well. Uh, so one of our other sort of things that we, we think too is that we like our programs to be complex in design but simple in execution. So for our athletes over the off-season, we will keep their programs relatively simple in that we will just use very basic lifting techniques, stick to your big key rocks and not do anything overly fluffy or overly fancy, but also making sure that our athletes have the ability to actually complete their program no matter where they are too. So, for example, you know, we've got athletes in in America and in Europe and sort of all over the country at the moment. So when we prescribe our off-season programs, we use Team Builder, but we make sure that every single piece of that athlete's program is on Team Builder from their injury prevention to their prep to train to their running to their strength and power work. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also use one of the functions on Team Builder, which is a tag option. So rather than, let's say, for example, prescribing barbell bench press, will prescribe it as a horizontal push tag, which when the athlete clicks on that option, you get sort of six or seven different options that drop down to that. And the rationale behind that is that although we've got a really well-kitted out gym here at the Crows, if you're just going to some random gym in Europe or in America and you can't do our program with the exact prescribed exercises, then it just allows that little bit of variation and that little bit of leeway in that something is definitely better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And that athlete has enough options there that they can pick something that they actually have the equipment available to them rather than just having to skip that exercise because they don't have the ability to complete it. And then the other piece of that as well is, again, it's very basic and very simple, but it's just using different sort of fun concepts and things that they may not have necessarily had the ability to do in season. So for example, using things like run the racks or drop sets or rest pause sets or cluster sets for more volumes and different pieces like that, that obviously the athletes know exactly what to do there and we can put videos up and we can run them through how to do it, but just different pieces to to achieve what we want, but also to keep it a little bit novel so they have that buy-in and have that engagement in their off-season when potentially they're away without the touch points that we have. Yep. And going back to the three key pillars, so earn to write to to progress, which yep. we discussed in great detail there. What's the, the next one down on the, on the list number two? Yeah, so our our other sort of key pillar is what we term the waterfall effect. So the waterfall effect for us is that we are the youngest playing squad in the app. So part of our long-term strategy from a total football department, but particularly from a strength and power standpoint, is that we want to set the tone and set the standard with our younger cohort of athletes as soon as they walk in the door. Because in the next four or five years, they're likely to be our starting team. They're likely to be our next leadership group and our next captain. So each crop of first years, generally we find connect really well with the sort of the two to four years around that. Um, and they spend most of their time together, whether that be lifting and spotting each other or out of the club or in development meetings or whatever it may be. They spend a lot of time together. 
So by instilling our culture, our beliefs, and our philosophy with each young new crop of players that comes in, it allows us then to have that next group of players know that that's the standard. Oh, this is just normal. This is what it takes to play AFL football. And then as those younger athletes with us now start to become fourth, fifth, sixth years, they instill that waterfall effect and that waterfall keeps flowing downstream to each new crop of first years. So within the next sort of two to three years, you'll see that all of those athletes then have that exact same mentality, that's the exact same culture and the exact same philosophical approach to their athletic development and to their physical preparation program which is something that we've been able to heavily influence across that sort of last three years and will continue to hopefully continue to influence, which will then allow us to have hopefully like a a really good, strong, robust team that can execute the technical and tactical demands of AFL to the greatest level possible. Hey there, hope you're enjoying this episode with Joshua Manuel. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with Harry Simington. Is that where the um, the aqua bag comes in to, to get it to get that stimulus to, to, and keep the, the athletes engaged and, and challenge them from a stability point of view? Is that what you're trying to work at there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the it, it's it's not just you know putting them on and doing it for the sake of using it. It's, it's more so you can let's say you you. Um, you do a hundred meter sprint with the aqua bag. It, it's, it's sloshing around so that every step you take is going to be different to the next step. And then the next hundred meter run you do is going to be slightly different. So it's contextual variability. You might be running the same distance at the same pace, but you're using a different, you're using different muscles to do it every time because the, um, the, the chaos forces that, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's sort of, it's a way of um, a really easy way, thanks to thanks to the products, um, to introduce a really chaotic environment, a really unstable environment. And if the task is clear, that's really important. Knowledge of result. If the task is clear um, and you know your endpoint, then we can put the athlete in, let's say, a really chaotic environment under um, how they cope with that environment or the the self organisation, the um, the movement that they produce is under pressure every time. To hear more from Harry Simpson, make sure to scroll to episode 18 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to Josh. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah, well said, man. Thank, thank you for sharing yeah, that area of focus for those young boys and, and like you said, the, the future of the club. Where, where did that stem from, that thought process, the waterfall effect? Is that from another program or is that something that, that was there, an area that the team thought we really need to focus on because it is a young group. Take us through the, how it was created. Yeah. So that was sort of created, I guess, off the back of when I came across from the power to the crows. Yeah. Where crows were at, at that point is probably where port were, let's say four or five years, maybe six years pre that in that they were sort of coming out of a relatively successful period. They were starting to work through their rebuild and then, obviously went on to do really, really great things and are still a a really good football team to this day. So what I sort of saw when I came across to the Crows was probably where the power were at maybe four or five years before that. And I was really fortunate to see sort of the back end of that and the success that it creates in that your players like Tom Jonas, Robbie Gray, Hamish Hartlett, and a lot of those other senior players were one, big, strong, powerful boys but two were really, really great leaders to the rest of that group and the respect that they commanded and had from the rest of the younger playing group sort of just gave me that idea of this is where you want to get to and that your leaders drive the program and they drive the culture. 
And then it was basically just a process of reverse engineering that and saying, okay, well, if that's where they are six years down the track, obviously those players would have had to be young at some point and some values would have had to be instilled in them. Mm-hmm. We're sort of rolling into that rebuild or at that point we were rolling into that rebuild and it was something relatively fresh. So it was basically just a line in the sand that we had thought this is where we want to take our program. And obviously with a new head coach coming in as well, which is, is Nixie, he loves playing like a, a hotly contested, tough style of football. So that's where we thought this is a very much a line in the sand now where while we work through this rebuild with our young playing list and Nixie's working really hard on that on the ground, we can definitely complement that in the gym and create the athletes in the gym that will enable him to play the style of football that he wants. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, thanks for referencing that, that not only from their athlete development point of view, but connecting it, the dots to, to football. And yeah, that's, that's great, mate. Thanks for, for sharing. And, and like you said, it, it worked well in terms of performance for, from Port Adelaide point of view. So success usually leaves clues, right? Yes, exactly. And yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good way of looking at it. Number three, mate, what's the third pillar? Yeah, so I guess our, our last pillar is, is largely around, I sort of have touched on it as well, but it's, it's a holistic and multidisciplinary approach to athletic development in that we use our coaching staff and we have a quite close relationship with our development staff to understand the long-term abilities of our athletes and where they fit into our structure and where they fit into our team moving forward. So the big thing I think that we have to really keep in mind when we look at athlete development, particularly from an AFL standpoint, because it's such a well-rounded game that your athletes have to excel at so many different things and be a jack of all trades, is that strength and athlete development in AFL is largely general. And that our goal as physical performance practitioners is to give the athletes the physical tools that they need in their toolkit to unlock the physiological qualities that they need to succeed on the field. So we sort of think very much down the lines of if we use the, the Vanderchuk model or hierarchy of, of physical development in that you've basically got your general preparatory exercises, which are exercises that don't necessarily mimic the event or the muscle or the systems, but they do build an underlying physiological quality of hypertrophy, strength, general strength, power, reactive strength whatever that may be, and then specific preparatory exercises which don't necessarily mimic the event itself, but that they train the same major muscle groups in the physiological system. So that may be things like resistance sprinting, contrast sets, close change of direction and closing, those sort of things. And then you've got your specific development, your competitive exercise, and then the event, which are very much things that come from a technical and tactical standpoint. So our big thing is that we're trying to provide our athletes with the ability to then go in and use those specific development and those competitive development exercises to enable them to execute their event. And the big thing that we sort of think with that is, as I touched on before, is that we like to keep things simple, but do those simple things savagely well. So things don't necessarily have to be fancy, particularly with your first to four-year athletes. They're going to develop no matter what you throw at them. And generally, simple works better when it's met with savagely high standards. So that's a big thing that we also try. And then the last piece of the puzzle is because we have to be relatively general, but also because we are trying to always make our athletes better and keep them improving, is what is the most efficient and effective low-cost way of achieving the stimulus that we're trying to. So for example, we have some athletes who, who power clean from the floor and power clean very proficiently up well over body weight, but we also have some athletes, particularly our younger cohort, who it would take a, a relatively long time to achieve movement proficiency to allow them to load that. 
So rather than spending six months teaching the player how to do a hand clean or, or whatever it may be, we can get exactly the same stimulus out of jump variants, whether that be with a trap bar and banded pulls or trap bar jumps or trap bar CMJs. So it's trying to keep things general, but always trying to make sure that we're finding the most efficient and effective and efficient way of achieving the desired stimulus that we're looking for. Yeah. On that topic, the France Bosch coordinated movements is pretty in the S&C world at the moment. Yes. So that process that you have with Olympic lifting and simplifying it for the athlete that's in front of you, how do you go about that? coordinated sort of hip lock ankle stiffness type drills in the gym is that something you play around with or is it legal? yeah look it's a great question so we're, we're also very fortunate here that sam dodge who is our senior strength coach spent a fair bit of time sort of working with brands over at welsh rugby so that's been really really good and a great sort of learning experience for me and i think because he's seen he's seen you know a, a very boshy style of training but also quite conversely the opposite too in that he's been able to pick out the things that he sees as good and the things that he potentially sees as not having as much transfer over to to AFL football or, or to whatever field sport you're working in. So what we generally try and do is we're also really fortunate that we get a good 30 to 45 minutes with all of our athletes for prep for performance before all of their training sessions. So in that prep for performance period, we start off really, really general and that we do some, some movement, some activation, some mobility, keep that really general. And then we work into a IP and activation sort of segment post that where we try and tick off a large amount of the higher volume concentric isometric work that will prep our athletes for their session, also help with their overall bulletproof and robustness, but not leave anything on them. And then post that, we get sort of 15-ish minutes for athletic development. And that's where we do try and put in a lot more of our sort of transfery, coordinative approach exercises in that period as well. Because obviously what we're trying to do is is we're trying to sneak in athletic development because, in my opinion, every chance that you get for athletic development and to layer that into whatever you're doing, the better off that you'll be just from a repeated doubt effect. But also, it doubles down in that it's, one, it's a do no harm. So if it doesn't do much, then that's okay. But in our opinion, we, all, we, we do think it does quite a lot and we sort of perceive that as being the best time to integrate a lot of our hip lock or our switching or our sort of reactive pieces and sort of really hone in on those attractor states that we're trying to work towards for that session. So particularly like in pre-season, as an example, Sam and I will always sit down with Burjo and we'll have key themes for each session. So for example, if we're doing a session that's a lot of small-sided games or match play, we'll know, for example, that our athletes can be completing a lot of axel, decel, change of direction and potentially a fair bit of body contact. So then we'll tailor our pre-training prep for performance pieces around what our athletes are going to be exposed to on that day. Conversely, if we know that we're looking for a max speed exposure, then that's when we'll work towards achieving some of those more high velocity and acceleration attractor states and trying to work through those as part of our prep. But then also what that allows us to do is by hitting that sort of higher volume and coordinative work pre-training, because our athletes are exposed to such high volumes of running and such a, have such a high training load. And you will have seen this and all the SNCs around who are listening will have seen this too, is that by the time they get to you in the gym in the afternoon, they're relatively cooked. So by hitting that really high quality work when they're neurally really fresh, one, it gets way more out of it from a physiological development standpoint. Because if you're trying to do power and coordinate stuff under high levels of, of neural fatigue, you're really, all you're doing is just adding fatigue on top of fatigue. But obviously what we know with the interference effect is that, yes, it affects your reactive qualities and your, your rate of force development qualities, but it doesn't necessarily affect how much force you can produce irrespective of time frame. 
Yeah. So then by hitting all of that high volume coordinative stuff pre, it then allows us to come into the gym in the afternoon, have a lower volume session and have our athletes really focus on, let's say it's a, it's a primary lower body days on squatting heavy or track barring heavy and just producing maximum amounts of force with big rests to allow us to then achieve that strength stimulus that we're trying rather than trying to throw you know, 200 different things at them and, and having maybe five or six of them stick, we can throw four or five things at our athletes and we know that the majority of them will stick and we'll be able to achieve the stimulus that we want under those levels of fatigue. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And no doubt it probably primes them well for a good footy session as well. Those movements are they feel ready and engaged. Uh, yeah, massive train. Yeah, and I think um, that's like, it's, it's relatively anecdotal at the moment. And we probably don't have enough sort of samples of it yet to, to say definitively that it helps. But looking at when we do either some power expression work or some reactive stuff pre-training and then test our jumps, we do see quite a good PAP effect and see a lot of guys sort of getting right up in, into PB territories pre-training and then rolling out and subjectively just saying that they felt really good when they trained. So I can't say it definitively helps, but sort of in our head, it hopefully has a positive influence on the way that they train. Yeah. And from a practical sense, managing a big group and doing these complex movements, are you doing them on the field? Are you breaking them up with you? Sam takes a group, you're taking a group, like take us through that. How are you coaching it? Yeah. So we do our prep work as a big group up in the gym because yep. we do always like to keep, obviously, by using our four steps or, or whatever it may be, we like to keep those, those upstairs. But we also like that to be part of our strength program. And we're sort of trying to slowly shift the needle towards our athletes becoming more and more comfortable with lifting pre-training. So we do complete that up in the gym and our general work is done as a large group. And then when we get to our really specific coordinated exercises, we're also, we're really lucky in that our sports science team and parts of our physio team are also relatively well-versed from a strength and conditioning standpoint. So we split our athletes up into four groups and it's basically four groups of 10. One will come with me, one will come with Sam, one will go with one of our physios, and one will go with one of our sports science team. We basically work, it's about 12 to 14 minutes. And we work sort of three to four minutes in each station with a smaller group, hopefully a better coach to athlete ratio. Yeah. Um, and that allows us to work over all of that in a relatively time efficient manner, but also get a lot more coaching time into those relatively complex movements. And you touched on it before in terms of planning and preparation with to prepare them for what's physically going to be hit in terms of might be max velocity or preparing them for yep. the small side of games. How much would you, for your boys, the young boys, are there specific athlete development things where you're thinking more long-term where it might be you're working on their ankle stiffness because you know that's a bit of an issue with acceleration, even though this, you're not thinking about the session, but you're more thinking about big picture or is it, yeah. is it predominantly preparing them because it is in warm-up for the technical? Yeah, look, it's, it's a bit of both, I think. We like to think that our whole picture in that point is just preparing the athletes for the session. But I do sort of think if you're doing that, you are leaving a lot of eggs in one basket and not potentially getting the best of both worlds. So the way that we work that is we have basically different streams. So each of our athletes have, as I said, sort of their EDP program. And we may think that, for example, guys who, let's say use some of our taller, lankier first and second year players who may not be overly coordinated and may not have great movement patterns, we may be trying to focus more on their switching, for example, and how they actually coordinate a good solid hip lock and holding that and then attacking the floor from above. Whereas some of our other guys who we've seen just have no reactive strength or, or lack a lot of those sort of systemic stiffness qualities, we may well sort of put them into more of that stream that then leads down those reactive lines. So I guess to answer your question, it's, it's pseudo-bucketed. Yeah. Uh, in the, rather than individualizing for everything, 
we sort of have three or four key themes that we look at are the big piece that's one, it's, it's probably works double hand and that it's going to prepare them better for their session. But also from a long-term athlete development standpoint, it's going to work better. So they're bucketed into groups. They complete relatively similar exercises. But let's say, for example, our, our group who aren't great at switching, they may complete more sort of wall hip-locky style things and more sort of exchange work. Whereas while they're doing that, our guys who aren't awesome reactively may be completing more sort of low-level extensive, low-amplitude bounds, for example. That's great. Uh, thanks, mate. Thanks for, for sharing. There's, there's plenty to it when, you, when you're not just dealing with a one-on-one setting, but a, a large group trying to you know, be thorough and deliberate with the approach as well. So a huge amount of art that goes into that and thinking, but it sounds like you guys got a, a great program there for, for everyone involved. Like you said, it's a very holistic base, so both tactical, technical, as well as athletic. Um, look, going back to yourself for a second, looking back at your career to date, what are some highlights that, you, that sort of spring to mind that you're proud of so far? Yeah, look, I think got very fortunate that I've sort of had a, a few highlights, I guess, from a personal standpoint. I think my biggest highlight so far to date was probably achieving my first full-time job. I think that's something that obviously everyone works towards and I still remember it very, very vividly, getting the phone call from, from Hassie saying, that, oh, yeah, yeah we're, we're keen to offer you this role. And I think that was, that was definitely one of the, the highlights of my career. And this may sound a little bit strange, but one of my other big highlights was probably the COVID period in that, look, it was, it was incredibly stressful and hard as I'm sure all of the, all of the, your listeners would, would know in that there was a lot of uncertainty sort of floating around the world. But I do look back on that period. Obviously, I was incredibly fortunate to, to maintain my role. And looking back on that now, the experiences that I was sort of able to do and the development that that period of time enabled me running sort of our, our whole AFL program I guess from a strength standpoint, solo. And then I took over the AFLW program at the same time. So it was sort of just me looking after 75 of our athletes sort of at one and, you know, working crazy long hours upwards of sort of the 70 hours per week sort of thing. So at the time it was, it was incredibly challenging, but at the same time, looking back on it now out the other side of it, I attribute, I guess, a lot of development that I've been able to make professionally to that time point and just being chucked in the deep end and sort of sink or swim and, and yeah, just roll on and roll with the punches and, and keep trying to do sort of the best you can through that period sort of really, yeah, broadened my horizons and broadened my experience. So, yeah, although it was challenging, I'm definitely a highlight and something that I'm incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to have gone through. Oh, I say you should, mate. That's two, Matt, like you said, throwing the deep end for one of them, let alone both of them at once. <laughs> Massive feat. What did you learn from that? Because that was going to be my next question, a, a significant challenge in your career. I imagine that would be a huge growth period for anyone that would go through that phase uh, what did you learn about yourself from a professional standpoint yeah look, i think the thing that i sort of learned the most from that outside of the the technical capabilities that you can develop through i guess sort of basically sort of having charge over a program like that was probably around how important it is to develop really good relationships with all of your players and then the differences in working across a, an AFL program than an AFLW program with one obviously being full-time and then our AFLW girls at that point being sort of relatively part-time was that you have to be a very effective communicator to all parties, but you also have to know what your big rocks are and the big things that you can or can't target. Obviously, when we're up in the hub in Queensland, you're sort of trying to girls that you don't know overly well, you're trying to prescribe a program for them while they're back in Adelaide in lockdown with no gym equipment. And then exactly the same with our, our men's program. Obviously, we were all living 
together in very, very close quarters and then using different gyms and we didn't know if we'd be at the same gym the next time. So it's, it's communicating really well with your players and the staff, but then knowing the big rocks and your negotiables and your non-negotiables and making sure that your non-negotiables are part of the program no matter what, because that's what you perceive as being really, really important. But then also being able to be flexible enough and know that it's not going to be perfect and that you can plan for a certain scenario. And because of the way that things are, it may not pan out that way. And, and that's absolutely okay. And look, that probably took me a fair while to get my head around. I'm sort of someone who likes to be relatively planned and have you know, a, a sort of set process and a, a plan that I want to put in place for all of my athletes. So that was relatively challenging, but I do think that's, that's something that sort of made me better coming out of that was actually sort of developing that ability to adapt on the fly and know what's important to you and what potentially isn't as important. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard it from an experienced practitioner that near enough is good enough for majority of the time in elite sport. You think, yeah, everything needs to be at the pinnacle, but Reality is it's a pretty fast-paced, chaotic environment. So uh, Definitely. And I think I sort of heard it. I think I heard it from one of – I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day and I think it might have been that Alex Moore said, don't let perfection stand in the way of good. Um, yeah. And I think that's just one of the truest things and sort of really resonated with me as well as I think that's a really, that's a really sort of good slogan to go by. Yeah, 100%. We'll move into the, the personal side of the, the podcast, mate. It's a bit lighter on, but yeah, thank you so much for, for all the detail and providing us context into how you run things. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote or, or a life motto? Yeah, look, I don't, I'm not sort of overly philosophical from a quote standpoint personally, but I guess my, sort of as I alluded to, my, my professional quote or what I sort of go by is one of two, which is do the simple things really, really well, but then to give your athlete what they need and what they don't have. So just having that sort of overarching view of this is what they may be good at, this is not what they're good at, what do they need and what do they possess, what do they not possess. Yeah, I love that. And what about in your work life, do you have pet peeves, anything that buys you up? Yeah, look, I guess hopefully I'm sort of easy to work with, but I think sort of one of the, the things that I can provide a, a sense of frustration at points for me is when the gym isn't left in, in perfect order. It's probably something that I haven't been as sort of perfect at, but something I'm sort of working quite hard to to make sure that things are left really, really spotless. And sort of, I guess, one of the things is, you know, when you when you go in or sort of when you finish off at six o'clock one night and you make sure the gym is spotless and then you roll up at seven o'clock the next morning and, you know, someone may have been in the gym and left a bench pull out or left 200 kilos on a trap bar or whatever it is, that's sort of, that's probably one of the things that fires me up a little bit. But on your own or that, with that one, <laughs> that's the conditioning coach is listening for sure. What about favorite way to spend your day off when you get one? Yeah, so I am a very, very mediocre golfer, and that's probably actually giving myself a little bit too much credit. But generally, <laughs> on a day off, I'll, I'll sort of sleep in and then roll my way out to the gym and, and have a little bit of lift. And then I've got a couple of very close mates who sort of always try and catch up with on that day off, whether it be for a coffee or a very average round of golf, and then try and come home and give some sort of chop out to my incredible partner who does probably a little bit too much for me. So try and get home and, and cook her dinner and whatever sort of I can do around the house there. What's on the horizon for you for 2022, mate? Obviously, it's off-season now for, for footy. We're getting close yeah. to October, grand final week this week. But, yeah, what's on the horizon for me? It can be personal, not, not just professional, or, or from a professional point of view as well. I am getting married in five weeks, just over. So Massive. that's probably going to take up, which will be Congrats. great. I'm really looking forward to that. So, yeah, so my partner and I are getting married end of October, and then we'll We'll roll off on our honeymoon post that. So that's probably the significant life event that I'm very much looking forward to 
for this off season and sort of the rest of 2022 before we roll back into preseason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, very exciting. Well, yeah, thank thank you so much for, for jumping on, mate. It's been something I've thoroughly enjoyed the way you've shared with us your, your approach and. No, no, the athletes listening in have learned a thing or two. I think some parents of athletes would, would have learned a thing or two, and certainly the S&Cs listening in, you're very deliberate in the way you go about things, and you can tell it's well thought out. So the athletes at the Adelaide Crows are, are lucky to have you, and yeah, we're lucky to have you on the podcast. For those that want to reach out and get in contact with you, maybe ask a follow-up question, where's the best place to, to get on contact? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk shop. So if anyone has any follow-up questions, please don't hesitate to contact. I am a social media, not hugely, but I think my Instagram handle is joshmanual1. Yep. So if you want to shoot me a message via there, or conversely, if you'd like to send me an email on my on my work email, it's jmanual at afc.com.au. So please fire that across and I'll do everything in my power to get back to you in a timely manner. For those that may be driving, listening to the podcast recording, I'll add the link in the show notes so you if you feel the need. But yeah, thank you for everyone that's tuned into this live chat. As we finish the recording, you'll be, if you're tuned in halfway through, make sure to watch the full recording. It will live on our YouTube uh, and then we'll post it on our podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks. Our next live chat is with David Missett. He's the high performance manager at Sydney Roosters and that'll be tomorrow, uh, the 23rd of September at 3.30 PM. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks again, Josh. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane and I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? 
uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever, as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.